Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, July 24th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Visgontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. For a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of my own course called 12 Essential Scientific Concepts. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is also sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. It seemed this week that we were kind of inundated by stories of impending disasters. Uh, there was that great piece by Catherine Schultz in The New Yorker about the next really big earthquake that apparently is going to devastate Seattle uh, and other parts of the West Coast. And there was a recent report by James Henson, who was a former NASA climatologist who has is, is known for being alarmist, but also for being right, uh, basically indicating that the sea level rise is going to happen much more quickly than we anticipated. So I thought it was time to talk to someone who really understands how these technological or natural disasters affect our appreciation of the science behind it and what we can do as science communicators to really get the right story out. So I called up Wade Rausch. He's a journalist, storyteller, startup entrepreneur, and educator. And he's spent his career making sure that people consume science in appropriate ways, that science is entertaining, and that science reaches a larger audience. He's currently the program outreach officer uh, at the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT. And he was the acting director for that program in this past year. And he completed his PhD at MIT, in which his dissertation actually discussed the effects of technological disasters on people's consumption of science in the media. So that'll be our interview for today. But first, let's talk about some science in the news. Despite all those disaster predictions in the news this week, this is a pretty damn good week if you're a science fan. We saw pictures of Pluto. There's a great cover story in Wired on CRISPR. Uh, We discovered a new quark, the pentaquark. Uh, But there was one news item that I found unbelievably troubling that seems to have gone under the radar. Uh, The American Psychological Association released a report detailing its all-too-cozy relationship with the Department of Defense back in the early 2000s, especially regarding torture. So back in 2005, the APA released amended guidelines for its members around security interrogations, i.e. torture. And what they did was they created sort of a looser set of guidelines that allowed psychologists to participate in CIA and DOD-sanctioned 
uh, situations, let's call them, at Gitmo and at other uh, 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 detention centers around the world. So, I mean, this sounds absolutely terrifying, but part of me just wants to blame Jack Bauer. Is that appropriate? <laughs> it, it, this is so much worse than 24 in the sense that uh, this really shows that science is as corruptible an institution as anything else. Let me read you a quote from the independent report that the APA a commission that was released uh, just this past week. The APA ethics director, joined and supported at times by other APA officials, colluded with important DOD officials to have the APA issue loose, high-level ethical guidelines that did not constrain the DOD in any greater fashion than existing DOD interrogation guidelines. We concluded that the APA's principal motive in doing so was to align the APA and curry favor with the DOD. So... you know, it's I'm speechless for one thing. Um, but I guess one of the questions I have is, what is the APA getting out of this? What it's in it for them to include? I mean, is this about funding? About getting research money? Um, that's I guess what I don't understand. You know, I, I I would understand why psychologists would want to work with the DoD and the CIA. I would hope to make sure that what's happening is ethical and you know maybe not in the other way, not in the other direction, where they're actually trying to torture individuals, but actually trying to prevent psychological torture from happening, or minimize it at least. Um, but I, I don't understand what would be the you know what's in it for the psychologists in order to collude and and you know essentially behave unethically this is a really great question the report in question that i described is called the hoffman report it's 540 pages long so i don't recommend our listeners to check it out but it details some suggested answers through uh discovered emails between apa officials and the department of defense so the dod is one of the leading research organizations in psychology given the nature of who they represent they invest millions in the area so there is definitely some indication in the report that this is partly about money this is also partly about policy in the sense that the apa wanted to position themselves uh in a way that they could uh, uh put forth arguments that are going to position themselves in alignment with future DOD uh, uh, policy objectives. So, okay, so part of me feels like this is another indication of what is wrong with the way science is funded in this country, right? Yeah, 100%. 100%. The reason that the DOD is so sought after by psychologists is because it has a huge budget. And look, there are a lot of other sciences, like the physical sciences, for example, that get a lot, a bigger proportion of DOD funds, I think, uh, I would assume, I'm making an assumption here, uh, compared to psychology. I mean, I imagine the psychologists are a, a pretty small percentage of the DOD budget. I, I think this is even worse than than the science story, though. I mean, because in at the end of the day, what uh, what the report suggests is that uh, the in-house uh, medics uh, expressed some dismay at the interrogation techniques that the CIA and the DoD was was uh, uh, intending to use. So what they did is they went outside to a different organization, the APA, to essentially get psychologists to do this. So already we have like a an issue right there that uh, that undermines all sorts of things. This a- these APA guidelines were used by administration officials to sort of support the use of these interrogation techniques, which is I think a bigger transgression to the general public than than just the science story. So, so and- wait, wait, let me get this clear. A bunch of doctors refused to do these evil things to people who were being detained. So they called in psychologists who didn't have the same ethical quandary. Is that is that the bottom line here? Yeah. And the reason they didn't have the same ethical quandary is because the organization to which they belonged issued guidelines uh, that would allow them to do so. I, I don't think this is as black and white as we want to paint it, uh, for sure. But uh, this is uh, it's so dramatically troubling in the sense that there was clear collusion from a number of officials on top. Um, And for years, the APA denied that they had been involved in this. Uh, The report was issued and in their entire management team was fired, naturally. Uh, In to their defense, um, in 2006, they reissued those guidelines, uh, condemning the use of that in alignment with the Geneva Conventions, uh, so that none of their members would be none of their guidelines would support members participating in these activities. But there was that short period of time where there was a close enough relationship due to money, due to policy, uh, due to just personal relationships overlapping, 
uh, that allowed for this uh, for this corruption because you can't imagine uh, some of the things in the reports where they talk about util- utilizing waterboarding um, as as an area of scientific research, and there's no ethical. Uh, guidelines that 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 comes um, within uh, from from the CIA or through any sort of IRB, um, and so it, it, this is uh, deeply troubling, and I wish this got more attention. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I thought with the you know with the establishment of IRBs or internal review boards at universities, and you can't run a psychological study and get it published anywhere without it having been reviewed by an ethics committee. Um, I thought we were beyond these kinds of quandaries, but yeah, I guess we still have a long way to go. So in June, we had an entire month in which we talked about emergent technologies, and one of our episodes was about 3D printing. And this next story comes from a research assistant, Caitlin Smith. So thanks, Caitlin, for finding this story. And Caitlin found that, in fact, there is not just a regular use of 3D printing that's on the rise, like we covered earlier on the show, but there's a specific use for 3D printing that is kind of surprising. So did you ever watch the Jetsons? Yeah, of course. Did you remember that they have this contraption where they like press a button and some kind of food comes out? Oh yeah, the the like rotomat kind of thing. Automat. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Good memory. So apparently that's in our very near future. So the idea is that you can actually 3D print food. Now guess what kind of food is already 3D printable uh, and, you know, able to the, the most of these 3d food printing machines can produce pancakes pretty close chocolate. dough dough sugar and <laughs> chocolate um seem to be the staple foods that now these 3d printers can produce uh so we have a long way to go before you can get your nice you know steak dinner with a uh, side of vegetables but it is apparently something that people are interested in doing now do you think you would ever want to 3d print your own food so i've seen a thing called pancake bot in motion which you know it's 3D printing is is a strong word, but they essentially have like a a squeeze tube and it extrudes out like pancake batter and it cooks them on a hot plate. Um, It was cute, but honestly, it didn't seem like that much faster. There's all these on-demand services for food that'll bring food right to your door in like 10 minutes. I can't imagine 3D printing food is that much faster. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I actually am a proponent of those. There are a couple in San Francisco, you know, Sprig and Spoon Rocket, who like you literally have an app on your phone, you tap in what you want, and within five to 10 minutes, they're at your door with a hot meal, which is kind of amazing. Um, but my husband is a big proponent a, of a meal called Soylent, which is this kind of hacked um, way of getting your nutrients. And, <laughs> you know, I at least 3D printed food has a texture. Soylent's disgusting. <laughs> All due respect to your husband. Uh, but could this have utility in the sense, like right now with 3D printing, there's libraries that you can download you know, schematics and print whatever you want. Are we talking about something like that? I mean, there's there's that component to it. But I think probably what's more exciting for those of us who are interested in keeping the environment uh, as close to what it is today as possible, um, there is an, a, a, there's current research going on to develop meat in a 3D printer. So we actually have a friend who uh, is, is the CEO of a small company that um, is sort of generating meat in a Petri dish. Uh, and apparently it's pretty good, pretty tasty. So the idea is if you could create meat, which is one of those um, foodstuffs that is really, you know, hard on the environment to produce, right? We know that that animal farming really takes its toll on the environment. If you could instead outsource that to some kind of a machine, you know, perhaps you could really reduce the footprint environmentally of uh, eating meat. So you know, that's that's one potential benefit. <laughs> so with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Wade Rausch. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving our listeners a special offer of up to 80% off my series called 12 Essential Scientific Concepts. In this series, which is made up of 24 half-hour episodes and is available on audio and video formats, I talk about topics as diverse as thermodynamics, DNA, neuroplasticity, and more. Do you have someone that you know that still thinks that science is boring and something that they really shouldn't have to think about once they graduate from high school? Well, this course is for them. I really tried to outline what's exciting about science, why everyone should really make sure that they're up to date on these essential concepts, and 
why science can make your world that much more interesting. So this special offer of 80% off 12 Essential Scientific Concepts is only valid for a limited time. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more about this special offer or any of the 500 other series offered by The Great Courses. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. This episode is also sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from on topics ranging from politics to science to the classics. It lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. And Audible is offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. You just have to go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds and pick one of the 150,000 plus titles to download for free. For example, you can get the book we talked about with our guests last week, Michael Hiltzik's Big Science, Ernest Lawrence and the Invention that Launched the Military-Industrial Complex. Or from the show before that, Alvin Roth's Who Gets What and Why, The Hidden World of Matchmaking and Market Design. You can download either of these or a ton of other books for free right now by going to audible.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Wade Rausch. Thanks, Andre. So this week, there's been a paper that's been covered in the news, and it's a little bit alarmist. It's uh, from a NASA, former NASA climatologist and uh, uh, his 16 co-authors. And he essentially predicts that the sea level rise that we're expecting as a result of global warming is going to happen a lot more quickly than we thought. And this, I don't want to discuss this paper at length because, you know, neither of us have read it yet. It's, it hasn't quite yet been published. It's still undergoing peer review. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about these kinds of predictions and how they affect the general audience view of science. Yeah, I think people feel buffeted by this kind of news. And it comes in, in waves around the times of the, uh, the big UN conferences. And sometimes it comes in smaller waves in between. But this is, uh, I mean, you and I haven't read this paper, and it's, this is news coming so fast that uh, we're still absorbing it. But I think it's the kind of thing that sets people back on their heels a little bit and makes them think, okay, um, I guess I can't really afford to ignore this global warming issue <laughs> anymore. Or maybe it's edging people in that direction anyway. So when we have uh, these kinds of major events happen. Let's say, let's, let's, let's fast forward 50 years and let's say we have had this sea level rise or one of these major disasters happening. What generally is the reaction that we should be expecting from people in terms of how they uh, approach the science? And is there a way that scientists can, you know, stop people from being super afraid, uh, but still give us the information that we need? Well, my interest all along, kind of as a historian as a, and as a journalist, has been in the way that the public learns about technology and science and how they integrate that information into their lives and how they use it to, you know, make better decisions as consumers or as parents or as patients um, or as voters. And when it comes to climate change, I think that this is basically a slowly unfolding disaster. And so the information that we get is going to kind of trickle out in bits and pieces over the course of years and decades. So it's not like more the more fast motion disasters that that I wrote about back when I was in grad school. It's not like a, a Three Mile Island, right, or a Chernobyl or a Challenger explosion. It's not one of these things that hits us all, all at once in the face and we have to co- kind of cope and catch up. Climate change is a reality that we are only sort of starting to wake up to. At this point, it's still kind of up for debate what the real consequences will be. But if something as catastrophic as a a 10-foot sea level rise in 50 years were to actually occur, I think we have to keep in mind that it would take 50 years, right? It's not going to happen overnight. There are going to be sort of episodes of encroachment. Um, Superstorms like Sandy showed us how quickly and, and sort of rapidly um, a landscape can be inundated. And that is a real emergency that we have to deal with. But overall, we're talking about slow changes and, and rises in average uh, sea level across the globe. Um, so we'll have time to think about it. We'll have time to debate what to do about it. And that part of that process will be a process of citizens kind of educating themselves about what's really happening, where the science is coming from, who's doing it, how credible it is. 
and then trying to figure out, okay, what's my role in responding to that? And so part of what I'd like to do in, in my career as a journalist and uh, as an academic and as a kind of professional skeptic is just to help people come to grips with that process and understand better um, how science information gets to them and how to ask questions about it. And when we have had these kind of fast-moving technological disasters in the past, how do you rate people's response to it? I mean, is it are, are we taking them? Are, are we are we kind of responding in a way that is um, not only efficient but also in um, kind of like large enough given the scale of the disaster? Or is it that once that news cycle has turned around, we kind of forget about it and just? don't do the things that we should be doing to either prevent the next disaster or help the people that have been affected by it. It's true that people's memories are pretty short and that life just moves so fast that we all move on to the next, you know, big thing that we have to worry about, whether it's getting your kid to preschool in the morning or taking care of an ailing parent or just making your shopping list. It's hard to stay focused and stay upset and stay alert about any one risk or danger continuously that we're just not built that way. Um, so it's kind of understandable that, well, for example, after an event like the um, the nineteen eighty nine earthquake in San Francisco, right, that um, there were graphic images of uh, neighborhoods in the city burning and the Bay Bridge kind of collapsing. Uh, but it took twenty five, thirty, <laughs> thirty years to fix that bridge, right? So our responses tend to be a lot slower than the the pace at which the events themselves unfold. And also we do suffer from short memories and we have to move on and start worrying about other things. But I do think there's a cumulative impact and that some of these events do kind of wind up gouging pretty deep gouges uh, or chasms in our memories. So when you say Three Mile Island, when you say Chernobyl, uh, when you mention you know an earthquake like the San Francisco earthquake, people know what you're talking about. Those are touchstones in our cultural memory and um, and Sandy and Katrina – and, and uh, other more recent disasters, the Deepwater Horizon, you know, we have kind of a growing fund of, of these touchstones. So we, I think people are slowly kind of coming to understand that there is sort of a script when these disasters unfold. It, part of the script involves um, the, the sort of technical details of some of these technologies coming to light or the inner workings of a superstorm coming to light. And I think we learn from those things. A little bit each time and kind of grow as uh, a society uh, and and maybe are a little bit better prepared for the next one. So I'm optimistic that there's sort of a cumulative learning about these things. So we don't start from square one every single time. And one of the things I've been thinking about is, is how scientists and science communicators can frame the information that we get about climate change. Because one of my fears is that we're just going to all get fatigued about hearing about these things. Um, it's going to take, let's say, 50 years. And by the time you know we get 10 years in, people are going to be tired of hearing about these predictions and just stop paying attention to the news that comes out and, and in that way, maybe not make the right policy decisions. So what do you see as the role of scientists and science journalists in order to either prevent that from happening or you know fight that kind of fatigue so that we actually do something about it. No, you're absolutely right, Andre, about the fatigue. I think that fatigue is evident in newsrooms, for example. I mean, for a long time now, um, science journalists, especially the ones who co cover climate, have had this exact challenge of having to take a climate story to their editor and say, you know, we got to cover this. And the editor says, why? And the, the reporter says, well, because we now know that the climate's getting warmer. And the next year, you know, the same scenario repeats. And the, and the story is, well, the climate's even a little warmer. And now we're 99% sure. And now we're 99.5% sure. And now we're 99.9% .9 sure, right? So the story hasn't really changed. It's just the magnitude of it that gets a little more dramatic and a little more certain every year. I don't think that that fatigue is going to be a problem for much longer. For better or worse, I think the story is going to shift a little bit. So far, we've been talking mostly about science, the science of predicting uh, how the climate is going to evolve. And if any of the predictions are true, if this Hansen paper has a grain of truth in it, then we're going to be shifting pretty soon into a period where we're actually dealing with the impact, right? So it's not going to be a 
question of debating who's right or whose forecasts are better. Um, but it's going to be a question of how do we actually deal with rising sea level or increasingly extreme storms or you know drought in major sections of the country for decades on end. Those are realities. And so the conversation will shift from the predictions and the forecasts to the actual politics of how we as a society are going to kind of build future infrastructure and how we're going to spend federal and state and local budgets to actually deal with the impacts. Some of the hot button issues that have been around for a while, um, you know, I'm going to bring up one uh, vaccines and the anti-vaccine problem that we've had uh, for the last couple of years seems to be getting better. Right. It's I feel as though a lot of the things that I'm reading now, you know, when you do have some kind of anti-vaccine fear mongering, there's a very quick reaction. And, you know, that kind of misinformation is being put to bed fairly quickly. At least that's my perception. And yet I still meet a lot of people who are afraid of vaccinating their kids. Um, do you see that there has been a shift in some of these hot button issues? And if so, which ones? Which ones are we still working hard to um, actually overturn? Um, and if not, um, what what can we possibly do differently? This is such a huge question, and it's one I've been puzzling about and tons of people have been puzzling about for many years. It's when you live in a democracy – you have to leave room for people to ask questions and push back and express concerns. And that there's probably no more sort of poignant situation than a parent who has a child who is autistic, for example, and has legitimate questions about the science and the sort of epidemiology of that. So um, you, you, can't, you can't simply um, ignore or um, look down on or condescend to somebody who comes to you with a serious question about why is my kid autistic, right? Could it have something to do with, uh, with vaccines? You have to engage those folks and their real concerns and find out where they're coming from. And I think we haven't really yet evolved a, a very efficient or kindly uh, way of having those conversations. It's starting to happen. And maybe there's a somewhat you know, maybe we have maybe we're having the beginnings of an increase in civility around some of these uh, contentious issues, and also maybe there's a, a tipping in the balance uh, in the way the media portrays these issues. I think for a long time uh, there was a tendency uh, in the press to pretend that you were being objective by simply covering both sides of an issue. The classic sort of uh, false equivalency of putting one person on the pro-vaccine side and uh, uh, one person on the anti-vaccine side and calling it a day and, and you know, uh, saying, OK, I've been objective because I presented these two points of view. I think that there's been enough sort of media criticism over the last few years of, of that approach that that most writers who deal with these issues are starting to think, you know what, the anti-vaxxers are pretty much just wrong in terms of the science and we're not going to give them a lot of column inches. We're going to talk about the science and and maybe over time, let's learn how to do it in a more respectful way. And I, I do hope that we are moving beyond some of the sort of uh, impasses that we've been at around issues like vac vaccines. That's one where there's been a lot of sort of hopeful hopeful movement in the last couple of years, um, especially with things like the um, California state legislature really getting serious about cracking down on personal beliefs exemptions for uh, the parents of, of kids in California public schools. That's... That's an amazing example of sort of lawmakers waking up to just the reality of the science. And um, I think there are plenty of other issues where we haven't quite gotten to that point yet where the, the, the shift of public discourse is happening. One that comes to mind is genetically modified foods. I think there's still a fairly high level of alarm uh, among general consumers uh, about GMOs. And there's still a lot of misinformation about um, – there's still sort of an idea out there that genetically engineering a food makes it somehow uh, more dangerous, um, that we don't know what we're doing, that we're sort of opening a Pandora's box or creating a Frankenstein monster or whatever myth you want to insert. Whereas the science is pretty clear that um, in most – you know, there's very little evidence that any – there's no evidence I've seen that any GMO food – that has gone through uh, a rigorous approval process has harmed anyone. And in fact, the economic uh, benefits of s some of these technologies are indisputable. So that's a, a, a debate that we continue to have. 
Unfortunately, you've got uh, sort of backsliding in some areas when, say, a restaurant like Chipotle comes out and says, okay, we're going GMO-free. Well, that actually made me think twice about going to Chipotle because, to me, that is sort of feeding into a, um, a, a big area of misinformation. So I'm not saying that I'd be happier if Chipotle were <laughs> serving me GMO foods. I just think for them to basically take that off the menu is a knee-jerk response to an issue that we haven't really finished a discussion about. Yeah, in some ways you could also argue that you know Chipotle, which is a huge chain, which takes up a lot of food, uh, maybe that it's it's not the best idea for them to be you know sourcing their food from smaller farms. Yeah, you know. I don't know what the economic impact is of that, but you know, I, I agree with you that it seems like a completely fallacious statement that is, you know, it is in, in some ways pandering to this fear. Um, and I have to say that that I absolutely agree with you. I know that I will get a series of emails from even our listeners, um, you know, basically being angry at the fact that we're saying that there's really nothing that that is harmful about GM foods in terms of their safety for human consumption. Um, it is a hot button issue that that even our listeners who you know are generally uh, very astute and and up on all the science. You know that's still one area where you know people have a lot of uh, feelings that that kind of affect the way they uh, interpret the science. Um, whereas I agree with you as well that that in terms of vaccination, I, I am I feel as though there's more of a shift, and maybe it's the California ruling that has kind of made that more real to me. Um, but besides GM foods, uh, which I you know we could spend an entire conversation talking about that. Certainly could. <laughs> um, is there any other hot button issue uh, that you have kind of experienced that you feel as people are still on the kind of wrong side of science in terms of how they uh, interpret the the data? I think GM foods are pro- is probably the biggest example of that right now. It's a it's a a big issue where, as we've just been discussing, the the sort of the balance at the at the moment seems to be in favor of let's just let's be cautious. Let's not put this stuff on the menu. Let's wait until the science is in or something like that. I'm trying to think of a better example or another example. Um, that's my favorite one at the moment, <laughs> to tell you the truth. What about robots? That's I mean, a good one. Are we are we worried about um, the the robot revolution that's gonna you know the singularity that's gonna come and and you know we're gonna take over the world? I'm not sure that the debate about automation and robots and their effect on employment has filtered down yet to the level of sort of popular fear and discussion. That is a really interesting theme or thread that's happening um, at a high level. There are plenty of economists and uh, labor statisticians who are worrying about the sort of potential long per- long-term impact of not just robotics but automation more broadly and looking at some of the um, sort of trying to project what it might mean if automation um, wound up displacing workers in more and more fields and whether or not we're prepared as a society to really uh, create new and interesting and challenging and, and, uh, and, and, and paying jobs for the people who, who will be displaced. Are we set up for uh, retraining and education for the, the potentially tens of millions of people whose jobs are at risk from greater automation in the workplace? Well, that's a really crucial question, and it's being asked in economics journals. Uh, You know, you're seeing it on the covers of magazines like The Atlantic. I'm not sure it's taken hold yet at the the level of sort of, you know, labor unions. (laughs) You don't see the UAW arguing about this or the AFL-CIO. Um, you don't see policy papers coming out of – I could be totally wrong, of course. There could be think, you know, labor think tanks in Washington who are worrying about this stuff. But it hasn't kind of uh, bubbled over into the level of a, uh, a popular um, fear in the same way as vaccination. So, and, and I wouldn't – I'd be dismayed if it did, right? Because this is a really big issue that could affect the livelihoods of so many people. And we can't really afford to have a, an overly emotional, misinformation-filled debate about it. So uh, maybe we have an opportunity with the debate about robots and jobs and employment to have a, a sort of more deliberate and, and more information-driven debate about what this means for workers. That one, I'm, you know, I think we're, I'm pretty optimistic that we're, we're approaching the issue in a pretty thoughtful way so far. So maybe this is a good case study for how these debates filter out. Um, let's kind of 
think about what's happened, what's gone wrong in previous discourses about things like vaccination and how you teach evolution and uh, what you do about genetically modified foods and climate change. And maybe let's be a little proactive this time and equip people to have uh, a more civil discourse about uh, the coming age of automation. So one field that has already been changed by technology is one that is very close to both of our hearts, and that's science journalism and science communication. Journalism, you know, in general has been has been changed in the last few years and is going to continue to change. So what do you see? Are you excited about the future of science communication? Um, what do you see as the directions that, that science journalists should be going in? And how is technology going to change the way that we consume science? I'm super excited. I, I couldn't be more excited because I think we're at a moment in the development of media technology where it's possible for the first time for not just for journalists, but also for basically lay citizens to get their hands on technology that lets them tell stories across media in more compelling and more entertaining ways than ever before. So uh, just to kind of back up, um, I just finished a year as the acting director of uh, an amazing program at MIT called the Knight Science Journalism Fellowship Program. And it's it's a terrific program that brings um, established um, star mid-career science journalists and uh, technology and health and environmental journalists to the campus here at MIT to basically take classes and go to seminars and go on field trips and meet researchers. And they spend a year basically exploring the riches of MIT and also recharging their batteries as professionals. And a big part of the kind of curriculum that we offer to the fellows is digital media training. So all of the fellows who come through the program uh, get a chance to basically uh, learn or relearn some of the uh, sort of introductory level techniques that they need if they want to get into podcasting or videography or video editing or animation uh, or website design and development or, you know, big data analysis and how that feeds into journalism. So we give them a sort of a smattering or an introduction uh, to the state of the art in each of those fields and give them a chance to kind of go back into their newsrooms and decide how they're going to amp up their own um, practice as professionals. And for me, it was just such an amazing year because I, I got to be the one who was coordinating this training and, and introducing the fellows to these new technologies and and just seeing how their eyes light up when they realize it's not nearly as hard as I thought to, uh, you know, use one of today's basically, you know, point and shoot HD video cameras, or it's not as hard as I thought to sit down and craft a, a really nice looking website. We're at the point where the interfaces and the authoring tools for these kinds of things are so sophisticated and so easy to use that, you know, it, <laughs> Do you remember the cartoon Doonesbury? Um, there used to be a character in Doonesbury. Uh, I don't remember the character's name, but he was a reporter, a journalist. And he went around with basically a radar, a satellite dish on his head and a camera uh, sort of strapped to his chest. And the joke was that he was sort of a one-man roving newsroom and he didn't even need a van, didn't need a cameraman. He was out there covering everything himself. And it was a little bit science fiction-y at the time, but I think we're at the point where you can be a, a roving sort of one-person multimedia newsroom as a journalist, and, and it's because the technology is cheap enough and easy enough to use that you don't have to spend a whole career getting to know how to use it. You probably do need to spend a whole career getting really, really good at it, but you can at least sort of become a dabbler, and there's nothing wrong with dabbling. <laughs> so I think we're at a point where everyone can dabble, and that's just incredibly exciting. But there's also a downside to that because, you know, everybody can put their stuff on the Internet. And so as consumers of science news, it's, it's often hard to tell, you know, the, the really good news coverage from the not so good news coverage. So how what advice would you give to people who are consuming uh, science news in terms of making sure that their sources are really the best places to get the information they need? That is one of the big dilemmas that we're going to have to sift through as a society is as you get more quantity of information, you have to be more careful about really assessing the sources and the credibility of, of the people that uh, are authoring this, this stuff. So to some extent, we need to fall back on the old traditional sort of hierarchies. There, there is always going to be a news organization called the New York Times, right? It might not look like today's New York Times. But a century hence, 
my bet is the New York Times will still be around. I'll bet you that National Public Radio will still be around even, you know, after the last radio has been thrown into the dust pile, right? There will still be people talking over some kind of transmission medium and organizing thoughts um, in audio, right? So um, there will still be authoritative and sort of trustworthy organizations where where everyone's trying hard to meet a high journalistic standard and to do the kind of fact-checking that we've kind of come to expect from our best publications. And so for truly authoritative information, I think <laughs> there's always going to be a place to go to, uh, you know, find – Find the writing of journalists who are making a good faith effort to talk to the right sources and talk to enough sources and fact check what they're writing. And then at the same time, there's a total explosion of information out there, much of which is extremely entertaining and compelling that hasn't been fact checked and it hasn't been sort of multi-sourced to the same level. And that's not to say that it's not fun to watch or valid to watch. But I think that we're going to have to become more sophisticated in our sort of – in regulating our own information diets and making sure that maybe we get a good mix. Um, maybe there should be a recommended daily allowance of, uh, of information and your information RDA should include a certain percentage of information from established news outlets and a certain percentage from anything goes type outlets like YouTubers. And so how deeply do you think uh, journalists should go who are, say, freelancers into fact-checking their work? I mean, do you, do you, is it enough to just read the original uh, source, the original paper? Um, do you always need to contact the scientists involved? Uh, what if they don't return your call? Sort of what do you think should be the kind of minimum requirement for fact-checking for a, a, a journalist who actually wants to become credible? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a pretty extreme position on this and then maybe walk it back. So I, I think that when I'm writing a long magazine article, I, you know, I'm, I'm used to working with publications where there are full-time fact checkers. And I know I'm going to have to confront that person or you know, work with that person at some point in the editorial process. So once the commissioning editor and I have sort of finished shaping a piece, it's going to go to this fact checker. And that fact checker is going to want a citation or a source for every single sentence in the story. So, you know, I long ago got, in, got into the habit myself of basically using the footnoting tools in Word to insert a footnote for every single sentence that I write. And so, you know, a 5,000-word story might wind up having 100 footnotes. And I'm doing that in order to sort of speed up the whole process of fact-checking that I know is coming down the road. So, that's a very special kind of journalism. I'm talking about feature writing for, you know, for professional magazines. And I'm not saying that every blogger and every daily newspaper writer should do that. But I think in the back of your mind, you should be thinking that there might be someone out there who is actually going to call me on every single sentence in my piece. And I need to be able to back it up. And in a way that wouldn't embarrass me and in a way that wouldn't kind of force me to scramble and reconstruct the, the reporting and research that I did, but to have it pretty clear in your mind, what was the source for what I'm saying here? Uh, where did I get this quote? Where did I get this fact? Am I just repeating something that somebody else wrote? Well, if so, how confident am I in their sources? You have to be able to basically back up everything you say. And um, so... I know that in many news environments, you're moving so fast that there isn't time for that level of fact-checking. But I think if you write with that kind of framework in your head, you're probably on safer ground. And as a reader, I think to kind of turn the table around, I think you know the readers of online news or print news need to be ready and willing to ask, ask writers, OK, for every single sentence, what was your source? Why should I believe that? And – in, you know, truly in the c cases of truly contentious uh, issues, I think it kind of raises the stakes and, and makes it all the more important that, that everyone feels – everyone on the writing side feels that they've covered their bases. They've documented everything they're saying because they, they will know that everyone on the, on the consumption side is going to be asking those questions. So even though a lot of our information seeking and, and writing has gone online – there are still a couple of physical hubs of innovation and technology in particular that continue to surprise me. So, you know, you, you consider yourself bi-coastal, you know, living partly in San Francisco, partly in Boston. Um, you've lived in both cities for, you know, a significant part of your adult life. You know, 
why is it that we have these hubs like Cambridge, Boston, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, um, where people who are primarily working in an online medium seem to cluster? Is it why is that physical location important? What what makes it these cities kind of you know hubs of that kind of innovation? Yeah, I, I've been lucky enough to spend most of my career working in either Boston or San Francisco, and. Uh, I, I consider both of those places my home. I'm not actually bicoastal in the sense of being in both places at once or having homes in both places, although that would be wonderful. Uh, real, what happens is in my career, I just tend to kind of bounce back and forth to to the two coasts depending on what professional opportunities are in front of me. So, yeah, I've spent about mm, 15 years working in, in the Boston area and maybe 13 years working in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I think – I love both places because they are there. There are there's no more rich environment than uh, Silicon Valley and San Francisco when you're writing about um, startup innovation, and there's no more rich environment than Boston and Cambridge when you're writing about research and development. So I think those two places are sort of the two ends of a barbell that represent the United States' uh, sort of enormous um, strength in in the world of innovation. I mean, that's why. I think the U.S. economy leads the world in terms of uh, new product introductions and, you know, you don't see things like the the iPhone and the iPad and the Apple Watch coming out of France or Spain or Italy or even Japan anymore. And it's because we have figured out kind of how to continuously innovate around here and uh, and I'm fascinated both by the the science side of it. So where does the fundamental insight come from that eventually leads into technology development and in the commercialization side of it? How do you take these insights and eventually build uh, products and markets around them? And so you asked, what is it about these places that makes them such incredible hubs of innovation? Well, that's one of my favorite questions, and it's it's one of the questions I spent a lot of time thinking about when I was at Xconomy. Xconomy is an online publication uh, based here in Kendall Square in Cambridge that covers the innovation ecosystems in about 10 hyperlocal places, including Boston and San Francisco. And, you know, frankly, I think the, the best answer I came up with um, after seven years of working at Xconomy and asking that question in place after place is just that there – is a list of magic ingredients, and well, it's there's nothing really truly magic about him about these ingredients. It's just that it's very rare to get them all together in one place, and it takes a long time, and there is a certain amount of serendipity to it. So, uh, one of those ingredients um, is having a great university, at least one great university, where there is a tradition of um, really strong R and D. And in the Bay Area, obviously, you've got more than one great university. You've got Stanford and you've got Berkeley and many others. Here in Boston, you've got MIT and Harvard and an enormous array of top uh, medical research institutes and hospitals. So that's where the science is coming from. That's sort of the foundation. Building out from that, you've got to have a whole bunch of other ingredients, including hopefully some anchor technology companies that uh, – are sort of training grounds for uh, engineers and managers and where, where people come out with um, uh, some experience in how to innovate and how to get products to market. You need uh, a layer of investors, basically. You have to have people who have enough money and enough experience investing in good technology ideas that they know what they're doing and are willing to kind of keep funneling cash into risky new ventures. Um, You've got to have basically um, a supply of young people who are willing to take a risk on these kinds of new ventures. And you have to have a culture where it's acceptable to take a chance um, as – well, at any stage in your career really, uh, not just as a, a student coming out of college or grad school. But uh, at any stage in your career, it needs to be uh, sort of accepted and encouraged to take a risk on a, on, a, on a technology idea and how to get it to market. And I think that all of those things are in place in in San Francisco and uh, Silicon Valley, and they are pretty much in place here in Cambridge. And when you see delegations of people coming through um, from other countries and other cities um, and asking, what is it that you guys are doing here in Kendall Square? Why does this work so well? Or when they do the same thing in Silicon Valley – all you can really say is, well, you know, we've got all these pieces. They're here for various reasons. Government support has a lot to do with it. Um, you've got to have, uh, you know, um, it really, really helps if the Defense Department or 
Um, other government agencies have um, research facilities or uh, bases in your area. That's a big part of the growth of Silicon Valley. So, sorry, long-winded answer to your question, but um, these kinds of sort of confluences of all the ingredients um, are pretty rare. It's why we've mainly mainly got only a handful of such clusters in the United States, and it's why other countries are so interested in and how they can do the same thing. And the answer is it takes a lot of work and a, a certain amount of luck. Well, I suppose if James Hansen's predictions are correct, there might be opportunities that open up in the Midwest and areas that are far from the coasts if the sea level does indeed rise uh, so much. But hopefully that uh, we'll figure out a way to solve that problem before it happens. I wanted to end with uh, a project that you're currently now immersed in um, that I'm really excited about. It's the Science Writers Conference uh, that's going to be at MIT this October. And, you know, a few years ago, there was a bit of a scandal in the science writers community um, when one of the former um, heads of what was previously called Science Online, um, you know, was there was a scandal associated with it. And people are interested in that. They can read about it in other places. But uh, since then, the community has kind of been fractured in my experience. And um, I think, you know, it's time for us to come back together and, and talk about things. What are you doing at this conference that you feel might be able to bridge that that divide and, and sort of solve our problems and bring the community back together? I'm not sure that the whole community of science writers has been fractured. I, I, I think that there is a, a growing interest in science blogging and, and using online channels for um, the kind of journalistic level communication that was previously confined mostly to print publications. So – I think that um, people have been uh, dealing with sort of a natural uh, maturation in online science blogging and science journalism. And the science blogging world has had its share of scandal and sort of growing pains just like every other part of the media. And that's a growing process, I guess. Um, you're right that, that science online uh, went away, but there are people kind of uh, as a result – spanning out many directions and trying new things and experimenting with other media and figuring out in what ways do blogs matter these days and how can we use them more effectively and and what does it mean to be a podcaster and how can you make science interesting um, you know on the audio channel and uh, and you know how can I master the tools of uh, video storytelling so I'm pretty encouraged about the sort of health of the of the ecosystem when it comes to science journalism. And um, this conference that uh, MIT is hosting in October is going to be a fantastic opportunity to get together and celebrate uh, what this profession is really about, which is uh, uh, journalists who have kind of made a commitment to understand the science uh, well enough so that they uh, can authoritatively translate it for lay audiences. You know, it's a, it's a special skill. Journalism is a special skill. It requires a certain commitment to just being a clear explainer and to fact-checking like we were talking about earlier and telling and telling the truth. And science journalism adds uh, another layer on top of that, which is having to having to basically explore and understand fields that are inherently complex and being willing to ask enough dumb questions of the real experts. Uh, to get to a point where you feel confident enough to be able to explain it to other people. Well, that's a pretty rarefied group of people who actually wind up going through all of the steps needed to get there. And this conference, which is called Science Writers 2015, is a national it's, – it's, it's the annual meeting of the National Association of Science Writers uh, combined with uh, three days of briefings organized by the Council for the Advancement of Science Writing, combined with a whole bunch of amazing field trips and lunch meetings and lab tours organized by us here at MIT. So it's basically uh, the one chance every year for the core science writing community to get together and talk about professional challenges in the context of uh, uh, an amazing sort of setting like, in this case, uh, MIT. It, it's, this conference is held at a different research university every year and MIT is hosting it this year. But basically every year this meeting happens in a place where there's really interesting science and technology and engineering happening. So you wind up going home from this meeting uh, – 
basically recharged in terms of uh, your your optimism and the toolbox you have for doing great journalism. And you also wind up with a long list of story ideas and new sources that you can unspool over the coming year. So, uh, you know, it, it's nothing but good. And you're right. There's going to be some talk about these um, these scandals and how to move beyond them. But mostly I think the focus is on the science and how we can cover it better. So, for example, there's going to be a great exp- uh, exploration of the, the results coming from the New Horizons probe to Pluto. There's going to be a whole session on, on Pluto and what we know about it and what we still don't know about it. There's going to be a session on inflation theory and uh, what the BICEP2 results mean for uh, sort of the future of uh, the, the theory of what happened in the earliest moments of the Big Bang. So this is heavy stuff and <laughs> but fun and, and there's lots to learn. I'm, I'm really excited that we're getting to host it here at MIT. Well, on that note, I want to thank you for joining us on Inquiring Minds, Wade Rausch. This has been fantastic. Thanks so much, Indre. So it's really fun to talk to Wade, and I love his energy, his excitement for the future of, of science coverage and, and so on. Um, but one thing that did surprise me was his sort of it, you know insistence that the New York Times will still be around 100 years from now, and if you want to get your news from a credible source, you should look for it at places, aggregators like the New York Times, uh, that have this, this strong reputation. So what do you think about that? So the part of that that's troubling for me is that we get this coastal bias for coverage here in the U.S., that the places like San Francisco and Boston that have a lot of the the centers um, or density of science uh, scientists are going to get the lion's share of coverage because that's where the coverage is going to persist because we've seen science reporters fall away from newspapers and whatnot. So I'd be I'm, I'm somewhat concerned uh, about that model uh, actually serving uh, to uncover like the the below the radar science stories that exist everywhere. Yeah, I wonder if universities are going to have to spend more money on sort of press relations, you know, trying to get PR people to uh, make sure that there are science journalists that are interested in what it, what it is that they have to say. And if we're going to start getting into a kind of a, a pitching war where universities are actually going to be pitching science journalists uh, to try to get their stuff covered. Yeah, that happens now. <laughs> <laughs> that happens a lot right now. The uh, the thing is, though, I, I want... Uh, I really want to see journalists, just generally as a topic, just become more science literate in their coverage. And we're seeing that uh, in, in pockets and fits, that we're seeing just sort of general uh, uh, politics journalists and uh, hard news journalists incorporate science in the stories because it's an important part of, uh, of those uh, stories and news cycles. You can't cover politics of 2016 here in the US without talking about climate change in some way, shape or form. So where I'm actually really hoping that uh, what Wade was really talking about imports is that we see the sort of spreading out of of quality science coverage and fact checking emerge out to that larger journalistic pool. And, you know, we have a shortage of jobs for scientists and, you know, too many people actually want to train as scientists. And that's that's a problem that we've talked about on this show. It's a problem that exists. And so, you know, if if a small portion even of those people who are interested in science could then get jobs as science journalists, I think that would be a good thing for all concerned, although there is still a stigma in academia if, if a graduate student goes and tells an advisor, a potential advisor, that they want to actually ultimately become a science journalist. I know personally of you know friends of mine who are professors at large, very well-established universities who simply won't take the student. Wow. Uh, you know what overcomes a stigma? A paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> so I think if the choice is between like landing a job or not having one because there are no jobs uh, uh, in science, I think that's a great uh, fallback. Not that we shouldn't describe journalism as this, like, you know, oasis of jobs where they're just handing out checks left and right to anyone that can write. Wait, it's not like that? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, I agree with you. I just, you know, I just worry for some of those students who, who, are going to then refuse to be honest with their advisors and say, hey, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm here for the long-term academic track, even though there's a part of them that really wants to write. I actually think we're seeing a big generational shift in that. We always hear about the unsupportive um, uh, PI, the unsupportive lab culture and university culture around this. And while that still exists in pockets, 
you know, especially at the university I work at, I see more and more of those senior professors support their students going out and getting internships um, with some time off from the lab uh, to explore other careers. Um, infrastructure is coming uh, down from the NIH and the NSF to support those uh, careers in other fields. So I'm actually really hopeful. That's, that's really interesting because actually the, the professors that I know who are anti-science communication students in their labs are uh, young professors that maybe they, they really feel like they need to get their lab established and they don't want someone who's just going to be writing about it. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your 3D printed dinner, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. For a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of my own course called 12 Essential Scientific Concepts. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Pluto enthusiast Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, The Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.